Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the medical literature, but as it's changed over time, you are far more preoccupied with finding where the staff toilet is, the code for this, and where on earth you can buy your coffee. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journal so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, my chunky monkey journal junkies. Listeners, you're probably waiting to hear the sighs or comments or even audible eye-rolling from my fantastic co-host, Dr. Jonathan Hudson. But tonight, I'm flying solo and so can say what I like. Yeah. And you are in for a fascinating hematological treat. In our recent roundup, we looked at anticoagulation in COVID, D-dimers in pregnancy, and age-adjusted D-dimers. Here to give us the expert view on these matters is none other than Professor Beverly Hunt, OBE. Her impressive CV includes informing policies, leading charities, writing huge numbers of papers, and lecturing all over the world. She knows her stuff. As always, don't be shy. Get in touch and tell us your innermost journal spotting thoughts via our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or Twitter at journal spotting. And please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that we can show off our shiny stars to awesome potential guests from around the globe. And it makes us feel good too. Right, on with the discussion. Okay, today we are back with the amazing clock myth busting Professor Beverly Hunt. It is so good to have you back on the show, Beverly. We last spoke uh, way back on episode 14 in July 2020, when we discussed what we knew about thrombosis and COVID. So, Professor Hunt, how has the last year of COVID been treating you? And did you finally get that holiday that you wanted all the way back then? Uh, I have just taken it. Thank you very much. Oh, good. <laughs> just taken it. Because, oh, because after COVID, there was vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia yeah. and thrombosis, uh, and that, that's taken up a lot of time. Um, so, goodness, back in last July, and at that time, we were very aware that uh, patients who were acutely were ill in hospital with COVID-19 pneumonia had high rates of thrombosis. And since that time, we have worked out the mechanism. So we, we've got a combination of an acute inflammatory state. Uh, we've got high levels of interleukin-6, interleukin-1, asking the liver to produce lots of inflammatory proteins. And of course, the coagulation factors are inflammatory protein. So we have really high levels of coagulation factors. And we have got the fact that COVID causes endothelial cell activation. And so the endothelium does a little flip-flop from saying to the passing blood, don't clot, don't clot, to actually stimulating clotting. Mm. So we've got those two profound mechanisms going on. Uh, so it, with that increases the rates of uh, arterial venous thrombosis. Plus, what we hadn't realised is that uh, when you get really bad lung disease, when you get acute respiratory distress syndrome, in areas of high inflammation, you get thrombosis. And we call that yeah. immune thrombosis. And yeah. a lot of the time when people are saying, there are so many patients who've got pulmonary embolism in my critical care, 
they were actually picking up the immunothrombosis, which will show up as tiny little changes um, on the CT pulmonary angiogram. So there's all those things going on. And now in the last few months, we've had the published papers yeah. uh, showing what the best uh, thromboprophylaxis is for patients with COVID. So because back this time last year, we were using large doses of heparins in all of the patients. And uh, it's been an amazing collaboration because there were three multi-platform trials that got together. Uh, one of them was Remap Cap, which is yes. in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and they all said, we've got to compare full-dose anticoagulation versus either standard thromboprophylaxis, standard of care, and some people were using intermediate dose, low molecular weight heparin. And so a lot of patients were randomized, a couple of thousand uh, in one arm and over a thousand in another arm. And to cut a very long, painful story short, the primary endpoint was looking at organ support free days after the patients had been admitted uh, and looking at day 21 and combining it with the death rate. And it's quite clear that in intensive care, despite those patients have high rates of thrombosis, standard thromboprophylaxis uh, is what we need to give. We get no improved outcome with uh, bigger doses of heparin. And it's more than that, we have much higher bleed rate. So the background bleed rate was about um, 2% and it went up to, I think it's 3.8% yeah. uh, in those who got full dose. So now we're moving back with nice guidance, WHO guidance to say, just use standard thromboprophylaxis uh, in those who are in critical care. But the surprise was those who are on the wards, so they've got COVID pneumonia, they need supplementary oxygen, but they don't need big uh, invasive mechanical ventilation. They did do better on full dose anticoagulation and they had acceptable bleeding rates, uh, less than 2%. So the recommendations will be if you're moderately ill, you get full dose, but if you're needing ventilation, you get standard dose. Okay. And then you have to say, well, why is it this? Because if you look at the rates of thrombosis, they were down a bit with full dose, but not that much. And I think it's probably because heparin is an anti-inflammatory drug. And we know that uh, uh, the steroids help patients with COVID. So maybe it's having that mechanism. And it's also probably got an antiviral effect. It, it inhibits binding of, of the SARS-2 virus to the ACE2 receptor. Oh, fascinating. Okay. They have, it may be working through those mechanisms, mm. we don't really know. Um, so in Brazil, they did a similar trial of full dose versus standard of care, and they used the direct oral anticoagulants, and they found no improvement in any group, and they all had increased bleeding risk. So it's yeah. something to do with it being heparin, which does suggest it may be the anti-inflammatory effect. 
Well, that's fascinating. We, we explored that. And actually, that was one of the things I thought, well, clearly, this, I wasn't sure if I could believe this data because it seems so, so strange and slightly counterintuitive. So, so why doesn't it work in the ICU patients? Why are they, um, why don't they get the benefits? Well, if we think it's anti-inflammatory, then uh, that it, that's causing improved out, clinical outcome, then they're on mechanical ventilation because they really have failed on anti-inflammatory treatment. So they've got an ongoing hyperinflammatory state uh, that hasn't responded to steroids and clearly isn't responding so well to heparin. That's how I think about it. Mm. I think you've come up with a number of theories and nobody could say, well, you're right or you're wrong. Yeah. And I, perhaps also with the antiviral theory, um, you know, the viral, it's not so much the virus, it's more the inflammation by the time they get to IT and they're so sick, so perhaps it wouldn't work for that. I'm, I think the authors, or was it an editorial, talked about how when you're so sick with covid that actually the heparin just doesn't work so well on clotting as well is that something which could be a factor or um so when we look and we monitor heparin uh if you're using unfractionated heparin that's the infusion we tend to use the aptt and uh, factor eight levels are very high with covid this is part of the inflammatory response and they interfere with the monitoring so we have to push the levels of um, heparin up. So it, it may interfere, but in actual fact, most patients were on low molecular weight heparin and not all of them were monitored. So I'm not so sure that that, that can be true. Fascinating stuff. Okay. So with the development of the um, dexamethasone, the IL-6 inhibitors, that sort of thing, are we seeing less thrombosis in COVID because we're tackling the inflammation? That's the $100,000 question. <laughs> no one's answering it. Not yet, anyway. Not okay. yet. Uh, and I have spoken to the recovery team, but they don't mm. have the data to look at the changes on CTPA in the patients that got dexamethasone or other steroids versus those who didn't. Okay. All right. Watch this space then. Brilliant. That's a good Let, question, that one. Let's... um. Let's make it really crystal clear for our listeners by going through a little example. So you've got um you've got George who was a who was recently attending an anti-vax protest. He gets COVID, he's admitted to the ward, and he's stable on forty percent oxygen via venturi. PE is not really suspected at this point. What would you offer him for VTE prophylaxis? Well, guys in St Thomas's for the last few months we have been offering full dose low molecular weight heparin. Brilliant. Okay. And poor George, it gets a bit worse over the next few days. He's stepped up to Optflow, then CPAP. Um, would you offer anything different at this stage? We drop him da back down to standard thromboprophylaxis. So the change to Optflow or CPAP, you just you yeah. drop him back down. Lovely. And um, if he was intubated and required ventilation, is that the same? Drop down. And what if at this point they're suspecting um, a PE? Well, he needs a CT uh, pulmonary angiogram, and if he's got one, he will be back on full dose. Exactly. Okay, okay. One of my questions, and perhaps a, a slight criticism of these trials, even though they're a huge trial and very well done, um, they excluded anybody who had a, in their clerking, I suppose, had a suspected PE or a suspected VTE. Now, everybody who is really sick with COVID who comes in the door has a suspected PE. Do you think it's possible that 
we were missing some patients and that skewed the results somehow. No, because if if you can't suspect, you have to uh, go on and do a CT pulmonary angiogram, don't you? And the, I think that one of the things that's come through is that uh, the patients behave at times as though they've had pulmonary emboli and they can, their degree of hypoxia might change suddenly. Uh, and you go and do a CTPA and not all of them have pulmonary emboli. Mm-hmm. It's the, the changes, I guess, in angiotensin and, and renin as a result of the ACE2 receptor being interfered with, I, I would think. I okay. don't know. I'm waiting for more data in that area. Okay. Well, look, uh, Beverly, it actually sounds sounds great. It sounds like you're very convinced in this 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 big study, this big data has is going to check what has and will continue to change your practice unless something else changes it. Is that right? Well, so we also have the Inspiration trial, which yeah. uh, was a smaller study, and they looked at intermediate dose versus mm standard dose thrombo prophylaxis and found no difference in outcome. Um, so that does suggest we should use standard dose in the critically ill, but remap cap is actually continuing and it's looking at intermediate dose versus standard dose. Most of the patients coming from the UK actually, uh, but as we haven't got quite so many cases as we've had before, it's going to take a while to resolve that one. Okay, wonderful. So we are we are finding the pieces to the puzzle, but there are there's still more to come. Yes. Great. Now we're, we're going to move on to a slightly different thing, something else we covered in the roundup and a pretty contentious subject. Um, and this is about the, the use of D-dimers in pregnancy. So the reason we covered it, they recently had a meta-analysis, um, which they found that D-dimers in pregnancy, from their point of view, were safe to use. They had they came up with a negative predictive value of 100%, and um, they found that if you had a low-risk score um, coupled with a low D-dimer, the three-month risk of VTE was 0.2%. But I would love your opinion on all of this. So who did the meta-analysis? The meta-analysis was recently published in um, the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Um, main author was um, Marta Bellicini et al. And they included four trials, not the DIPEP study, interestingly, and that um, gave them a, a total number of patients of close to 1,000 to use the analysis. I can tell you they all use different scoring systems. One was a modified Geneva. Yeah. was a modified year's score. Yeah. I remember what the third one was. And they all had small populations. Yeah, which is why they, they pulled them all together. So they had, a, they had around 900-odd patients um, when they pulled the data together. So 980 the, patients. Hmm. <sighs> Um, I can't say that you're really validating something mm. if you're adding small studies together. Uh, and the problem for us in the UK is that we applied those scores that they had published to our cohort of patients that we had collected in the DIPEP study. And in the DIPEP study, we collected together a lot of patients who had suspected pulmonary emboli and proven pulmonary emboli. Uh, And we found that if we used the score with whatever D-dimer they suggested, they missed uh, three or four patients who had pulmonary emboli. 
uh, and they missed some who had normal D-dimers but had PE. Um, mm. And because the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism is so difficult in pregnancy, and if you look at the years study, uh, they've taken it down to, I think it was three symptoms. Uh, if you've got hemoptysis uh, and if you suspect that you've got PE and there was a, a third one. I think it's clinical evidence of a DBT, I think it was. Yeah, well, I mean, hemoptysis is very rare in yeah. pulmonary embolism, especially in pregnancy. So uh, we weren't at all convinced that they would uh, actually pick up all the PE. And it, I mean, it's PE is difficult, isn't it? Because we don't want to subject women mm. to unnecessary scans. Uh, and the problem for us is because the symptoms of pulmonary embolism are so similar to pregnancy in that when we get breathless and it might be unexplained or they, or they might get a bit of chest pain, that we're doing so many scans and we're only getting 2% positive. So we are exposing 98 women to some form of uh, radiation just to pick up two. But on the other hand... If we miss a PE, it can be devastating. Uh, and pulmonary embolism remains one of the major causes of death in pregnancy, mm. despite all the attention uh, that has been given to this area and the amount of thromboprophylaxis that we give women. So um, if you analyze trials, where, which are all a little bit small and possibly not looking at that that particular score in a large enough population, does the meta-analysis make the situation any clearer? Uh, and I would say I don't believe it does. Yeah. Can you ex maybe explain then why why a negative D-dimer would would be falsely negative? That's what I that's what I, I suppose I think in a say in a first trimester patient patient who's a bit short of breath. Um, and you're trying to figure out if they've got a PE, you do a D-dimer and it's negative, you know, that in my mind would rule out needing to do any further investigations, but perhaps I'm missing something. Well, because there are there are the odd woman, mm. there's the odd mother who does have a normal D-dimer and apparently has a pulmonary embolism, and that's what we found from our study. Yeah. So I can't explain that, I think we have to recognise that fibrinolysis in pregnancy has got an increased turnover and it may be that they are able to break down D-dime, okay. uh, uh, metabolise it that much more quickly uh, than the non-pregnant. But that, that is an interesting area. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that doing that meta-analysis has validated the use of a scoring system with a D-dimer to exclude pulmonary embolism in pregnancy. Okay, thank you. So you would suggest just don't do the D-dimer from your from your data and what and your experience. You can do it, but don't use it diagnostically. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, you, you you do a test because yeah. you think it's going to help you diagnostically. So therefore, you probably wouldn't do it. Fine. So it's not going to help you. Great. Can I ask you one final question? What do you think of age-adjusted D-dimers and should we be using those? Uh, well, there's a point to them in that um, as you get older, you have 
increased turnover of coagulation and fibrinolysis. So D-dimers rise with age. So you could, you can use a nice recommend that we use age-adjusted D-dimers. Great. I think there's been more and more evidence about it, and we've covered that again on the roundup. So um, you've heard it here, listeners, even Professor Hunt thinks age-adjusted D-dimers are useful, but D-dimers in pregnancy are not. Wonderful. Sorry. <laughs> We're desperate for something. We're desperate for something in these poor... We're all desperate for something Yeah. Beverly, thank you so much for your time. That's really, really helpful. I know you're incredibly busy and we really value it. So... Get some rest. I hope you had a great holiday and we'll catch up maybe in a year's time with another update. <laughs> Actually, I did 750 kilometres of cycling. So, Is that not... what you just did? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Where were you? We were in Scotland. We did um, quite a lot of climbing. So we did 7,000 metres of climbing. So I, got, I came back very fit. But, you so... know, when you, when you cycle, you cycle, you sleep, you eat. And yeah. I couldn't think about COVID at all. Wonderful. That's absolutely amazing and well, well deserved. Although it sounds like you absolutely beasted yourself. That's incredible. <laughs> well, well done. And thank you I so much. I have very high D-dimers. They go up after exercise. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Which is part... Anyway, yeah. another, another story. You've been brilliant as always. You take care of yourself. Good luck. Take care. Bye. Well, 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 my hunky-dunky journal junkies. <laughs> John, I can um, just picture your face as you listen to this later. What a great discussion from one of the world's top hematology experts. Now, those of you who listened to our last roundup will no doubt have realised that our conclusions were, well, a little different to Professor Hunt's, especially relating to D-dimers in pregnancy. It just goes to show how varied opinions can be, even amongst experts. And just to clarify, I am not counted as one of those experts. And these opinions differ even when faced with the same data and evidence. It reminds us that medicine is as much an art as it is science. We can have all the data in the world in front of us, but often what we choose to do is based on our opinions, experience, gestalt, and the specifics of the case sitting right in front of us. Well, I think this makes medicine pretty great. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and special guest, Professor Beverly Hunt. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves. <laughs>